Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. This is my 156th numbered episode of the Bird Banter Podcast, and that's given me a chance to talk with a lot of different people as guests. I've had birders who got started at a very young age and have become quite accomplished. Ryan Rodriguez was my guest, along with his dad, and his dad's really only birder to help out Ryan, on an episode number 47, and he was my youngest guest when he was 12 years old. Ryan learned to read using Pig Sibley as a four-year-old, and by the time I met him, he was already quite a talented birder. I've had other birders who got into the hobby much later in life, maybe most notably the McQuaids. Dave and Tammy McQuaid became interested in birding well into their adult lives after watching the Big Ear movie and thought that Big Ears would be a fun thing to do. Well, like other people you might know, they got into it in a big way. Since then, they've had essentially have done an annual lower 48 Big Ear, many times seeing over 700 species, which is tough in the lower 48. I love talking with birders, hearing their story and their birding stories and their passions. My guest this week, though, is another birder who came to the hobby later in life. Scott Harris only really started birding maybe three or four years ago, but as he told me, when he gets into a new hobby, he is all in. For example, he wrote his first book about seven years ago and has now published 50 books in the last seven years. Now, that's a lot of writing. Think about 50 books in seven years. Anyway, knowing that, I guess it shouldn't be surprising that within a year or two of taking on birding, he decided to find all the regularly occurring raptors in the lower 48 states in a year. And, of course, because he's a writer, to write about that experience. Well, that's no small mission, and I enjoyed hearing about the quest, about his birding story. So help me welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast number 156, Scott Harris. Scott, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I am excellent. Thank you so much for having me. How long ago did you finish this uh, big, I can't really call it a big year, but big uh, uh, quest to see all the raptors in the U.S.? How long has it been since that finished? I wrapped that up in January of this year, so just about six months ago. And in in fairness to you struggling to find the right word, it did start out as a big year. Mm -hmm. Um, It wound up being a big 17 months. It took me a little longer. Um, Some of these birds were not as as easy to find as I had hoped that they would be. Yeah. Um, It's more a reflection on my skill than their availability. But nonetheless, uh, 17 months and we were able to track them all down. Very cool. Somewhere I saw that you just started birding relatively recently, didn't you? Um, about right around three years ago. Yeah, pretty recently right for around, undertaking okay? a big quest like finding all the raptors in the U.S. Yeah, you know, um, my wife and I sold our business. We lived in California. Out on You're on the West Coast, right, Washington? I am, yeah, Tacoma. Right. We, were, uh, we lived on the West Coast our whole lives. And um, we sold our business and moved to South Carolina. And we have a deck. We, we live on a lake out here. We have a deck. And my son and I were sitting on the deck enjoying a cigar and, and uh, the afternoon, uh, right when COVID started. Mm-hmm. And uh, some birds flew by. And I just casually mentioned to my son, I'm going to have to learn what those are. I don't know the East Coast birds. Not that I was into birding or a birding expert, but you live your whole life on the West Coast. You you can start to differentiate, you know, a goal from a sparrow. Um and about three days later, he had a Sibley ID book uh, shipped over from Amazon. And I started reading it that night and was just fascinated. And, you know, my family will tell you that when I dive into a hobby, it's it's with both feet and both arms. And I did that with the birding. And 
and uh, led to me talking to you here today. Yeah, very cool. Uh, I, you're lucky. Your son got you a good field guide. It seems like most people whose family get them a field guide when they say they're interested in birds get the, I think, the National Audubon pictorial thing, that red one. And it's just very difficult to use. And people go, how do you figure anything out? And it says, well, we don't use that. That's how we figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I, and his, and and I mean, my my son's a loving a loving son, but it was just blind luck, you know. He he wouldn't know Sibley from Audubon. He does now, but he wouldn't have then, and so yeah. we just got lucky. And of course, you know the Sibley guides; they're oh, they're, they're fabulous. Great reading, even yeah. if you're not a birder, they make fascinating reading. The illustrations are gorgeous, and and I love his prose, and so I was hooked. He is very talented, a very talented man, both as yes. a writer and obviously as a birder. Uh, yeah. So you got into birds and you started a quest to find all of the raptors in the U.S. How do you find raptors for your book? I, I was, you know, I mean, some people count owls, some people don't count owls. So, you know, how did you how did you define raptors? Well, you know, that's a that's actually quite interesting. And I'm glad you asked, because first of all, there there is no set definition of of what a raptor is. I mean, I wish that there was, but there isn't. And I looked and looked and looked and, and, uh, and I just couldn't find that. It just didn't exist. Um, kind of like the Supreme court justice had said, I, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. And over the course of doing this, of course, you meet a lot of people and I would tell them what I was doing and a lot of people were interested. And so we would have conversations and even among people who would consider themselves or who actually are experts on, on raptors, there is a difference of opinion. Um, vultures are probably the biggest question mark. Um, people are adamant that they are and people are adamant that they aren't. I kind of fall on the line that if we were starting that list today, vultures wouldn't make it. But they're there and momentum has a lot to do with the way that we look at things. So I included them. It's also, you know, there aren't very many raptors, uh, aren't very many vultures, and it might as well. Yeah, right. We have three. And it gave me an excuse to go look for the condor. So um, that was fun. I found people that, uh, that didn't want to include owls um, among raptors. There are those that want to differentiate more strongly between them. And then there are those that uh, that struggle a little bit with the caracara is kind of the bridge raptor between a pure carrion eater and, you know, half hunter, half carrion. And then there are those that want to add birds. They want to add parrots or they want to add shrikes. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so they make for interesting conversations. But almost every report I read said that there were 53, 19 owls, the three vultures, and then 31 traditional diurnals. And so I just went ahead and accepted that. I addressed okay. it in the book that it's not a gold standard. Heck, the definition of raptor isn't generally accepted. A lot of people are trying to come up with it, um, but they haven't come up with one yet that that works even for the 53 that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's interesting. And then even among those, you know, the, the Harlan's Hawk will probably be split out pretty soon. It's been split out twice before mm -hmm. uh, over time. Uh, the short-eared owl in Hawaii, they have an endemic that's considered a subspecies, but I don't know why that wouldn't be uh, considered its own species. You know, it's, it should either just be a short-eared owl or be its own species, uh, but a subspecies seems like just kind of a weak compromise. 
Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't even get into the speciation uh, discussion. I had an interesting, interesting guest on yeah, he, two or three years ago. I can't even remember his name, uh, but he's a, a PhD professor at Auburn, I think. Okay. And we had a big discussion about speciation, what drives speciation. That's his, that's his thing, you know, and it was, it was pretty darn cool. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could remember the whole thing. I'll, I'll, in the wrap up to this, I'll I'll look back to that and find my thoughts. There are people that take that very seriously. I mean, they study that down to the, you know, the seventeenth layer, and and I respect that and understand it. I don't think the birds care. Um, you know, if one day they're lumped and five years later they're split, and you know they're still doing their thing. But um, it does matter to a lot of people, and especially those who keep tight lists. You know, to wake up one day and have lost two birds. Oh my <laughs> goodness! Yeah, yes, for people who take that seriously, the armchair um, splits are the best, and the and the takeaways are the worst. You know. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there are a lot of uh, really fabulous uh, books about uh, raptor identification. Uh, so you know, uh, Dunn and uh, others. Uh, Raptors in Flight was one of the early raptor books I got. And just what a wonderful, you know, Pete Dunn is a great writer and his that is a fabulous guide. Uh, but what what uh, raptor guides do you find most useful? Well, actually, two of them by Dunn, as a matter of fact. Uh, Birds of Prey and Hawks in Flight. Uh, mm -hmm. In both those books, he had co-authors as well, but he was sure. the lead author. And um, I think they're brilliant. And I, and I find that as I go from novice to beginner, whatever the rankings would be, um, I understand his books much better than I did when the first the first time I read through them. They, I wasn't sure they were in English. Um, I had such a limited understanding, but more and more I do. Um, as far as a guidebook, I think the, the Scott Weidensall's book on owls, the Peterson Guide, mm -hmm. is excellent. And then a lesser known book, uh, written by a gentleman named Scott uh, Rashid, um, who is a small owl expert, actually might be a terrific guest for your show. Uh, he's based in Colorado and has spent the last 25 years studying the small mountain owls of Rocky Mountain National Park. Wow. And um, he was very generous with his time and expertise. He's written a number of books and um, he helped me find... Um, some of the some of the owls that I would have struggled with the boreal being the the most difficult we yeah. didn't just find we did not find he found and I tagged along like a Labrador uh, two uh, boreal owls in a week wow and so we had a great time um, so northern sawwit northern pygmy owls as well I made two trips out to Colorado so his books are are just filled with detail he's a very detailed man. Mm -hmm. keeps very detailed notes and that comes through in his writing it's not it's not fluid prose mm -hmm. um it is for people who are serious about owls but if you are and if you're serious about small owls it's a terrific book so those well, are the ones that i use a lot that's super cool yeah uh so i was one of my other questions was going to be uh what are some of the cool people you met in terms of uh just Coincidental meetings and people who sort of helped you out by helping you find some birds. There must have been some other, uh, you know, there are some raptors have some characters. I mean, there are some real characters in the in the U.S. raptor world. And and uh, I bet you had some fun experiences with that. I truly did. I, I, I think that, you know, in, in meeting people over the course of that, that year and a half, 
I believe that raptors are probably the second most popular grouping of birds, the most popular being hummingbirds. Um, people are people who like hummingbirds are really focused on hummingbirds. Mm -hmm. um, but I found that I think raptors probably came in second. And I did meet some great people. I met a young man. I went down to the King Ranch in Texas mm -hmm. to find the uh, fruitless pygmy owl. Yeah. Right. And um, so I did that. And I met a young man there. And um, there were about five of us on the on the trip. It was the opening day of their of their uh, tours last year. And he said, by the way, once I told him what I was doing, he said, if you have trouble finding a spotted owl, I have some experience in that and I'd be happy to help. Well, as the year wore on, I was having trouble finding a spotted owl. And I called him and um, he said, how soon can you fly out to California? And I said, tomorrow, if that works for you. Mm -hmm. And we met at a location. He drove three hours um, through the night, met me at five in the morning and had done some work. He's a student at UC Davis and had done some work on spotted owls the summer before. And um, so through that, he knew some people that were able to put him on a couple of nests. We got to see some fledges. The gentleman's name is Frank Fabro and a terrific guy. He was extremely helpful. Uh, a guy named... Um, uh, Josh Coville in Montana um, is a guide up there. He splits his time now between Costa Rica and Montana. And he was able to put me on a couple of birds um, in Montana. A short-eared owl, long-eared owl were, were two of them and was extremely helpful. Uh, Northern goshawk. And then he introduced me to another gentleman up there who was very helpful named Forrest Rowland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D. And Forrest worked his magic and uh, was able to get my last two birds, the 52nd and 53rd, mm -hmm. which was a cheer falcon and a northern hawk owl. Yeah, not and, easy birds, um, yeah. Yeah, they were they were tough. I didn't get them the first winter, and um, so that's why I had to extend through January. I had to extend because they weren't going to show up in the summer or even the fall. So um, well, You could have yeah. gone to Alaska, you know. Yes. Well, I wanted to keep it to the lower 48 states. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, yes, I could have, and that would have made life a lot mm -hmm. easier. I could have even just gone up into Alaska or into Canada, um, but I was focused on the 48. Okay. So those were the last three were the Jeer Falcon, the Northern Hawk Owl, and then the Hook-Billed Kite down in Texas. Um, took four trips uh, into Texas before I got the hook belt, and the one that I got I had 10 minutes left on a four-day trip. Oh, my word. When I, when I got it. And I was spending those 10 minutes walking back to my car, trying to figure out how I was going to explain to my wife I was going to need a fifth trip to Texas. <laughs> Were you um, on the tower at Santa Ana? Uh, the one at Benson. Benson. Uh, Benson okay. State Park, yes. Okay. And um, that's where they're seen most often. They zip right over from Mexico. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I had, you know, the same sad song that everybody tells. I missed them by an hour. I missed them by a day. Yeah. They came the day after I left, you know, a variety of things. And it doesn't take a tremendous amount of expertise to find them when they show up. You're just standing on the tower. There's other people there. You know, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's mostly a matter of just putting in the glass time. Yeah. Um, and, and being at the right time, you know. Yes. You can spend a lot of time looking. And if they're not there, you're just not going to find them. They're just not there. Yeah. They're just uh, one day I got there and, you know, they, uh, again, they normally come about 10 to noon as you check eBird and learn, right? That's mm -hmm. their yeah. time. So I got there uh, the, the first morning on this last trip. I got there at eight. I figured I didn't want to miss them. 
And there was one guy on the tower in front of me and he had seen one at 7.30 and there wasn't <laughs> another one that showed up. So I missed that one by a half an hour. But, there, you know, those just about everywhere I went, I met people who were helpful and there was nowhere where I met people and they weren't helpful. Mm-hmm. I didn't run into anybody that I'm not going to help you with that or you know, you're on your own, or I'm not going to tell you where you can find a ferruginous or, you know, none of those things. People were generous with their, with their time and and their knowledge. And I believe that's one of the things that I love most about birding. It in no way detracts from you seeing a bird, me having already seen it. There's no downside to it, right? We can share the bird. Uh, there's no birds left in the United States that are going to be unique to anybody. So they've all been seen. And so mm-hmm. we all, we all want to see different birds and there's no downside. It's not. And so I love that about the activity. Um, and the people are very helpful. In, in general, uh, that's been my experience too. Uh, yeah. I've got a question for you. Did this, this just popped into my mind. Did the Stellar Sea Eagle show up while you were doing this year? Was that part of the thing? The stellar. Well, my rarity story is this. I got the bat falcon in Texas. Mm-hmm. Okay. I work at uh, the Carolina Raptor Center. I'm on their board. And I'm on their rescue team. And they're about two and a half hours from the house. And my son and I had picked up a barred owl that was injured and drove it up there. And it was two days before New Year's Eve. And we're driving back. And I had some stuff going on in January. I wasn't going to be able to go to Texas. And Justin said, you got to go down there. You got to go get that bat falcon. I said, I just, I don't know when I can. One well, to me, he got on his phone while we were driving, booked me a ticket, and then told me about it. The plane was leaving about two hours. I didn't even get to say goodbye to my wife because she was shopping for groceries. And um, and I had said to Justin, look, I have to be home by New Year's Eve. I've done 44 consecutive New Year's Eves with your mother. I'm not missing one. I made it home like at 10 p.m. on New Year's Eve, and I did get it. Two months later, I went up to see the Stellars in Maine, and mm-hmm. I missed it. It had oh. been Three days previous, and I spent three days standing, if you went and looked for it, on the Aerosick Bridge in uh, Maine there. I stood there, sleet and snow and rain, didn't get it. I went back this February and got it. Okay. I, I am from Maine and have not made that trip. Uh, I, I, I go back every summer to visit my family. And, you know, winter trips to Maine, ugh, I, you know, for, I'm in Tacoma. And, you know, you pretty much have to go through Chicago or Boston. And both airports in the winter are just fraught with delays. I've I've spent four days getting home from Maine uh, in the winter before. And I just, I try to avoid that. Well, we're going up, my wife and I are going up next month. We're going to go see the Puffins. So that flight should be a heck of a lot easier in July than it is in February. For sure. Um, where, are you, yeah, where are you going? Are you going uh, out of, uh, out of uh, Bar Harbor? Are you going farther down south near Portland? No, we're actually going further north. We're going up into Canada. Oh, okay. We're staying, I believe you pronounce it Manon, Grand Manon Island. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so we're staying there and and uh, and doing the Canada part. And then we'll work our way down through Maine. We both love Maine. It's a beautiful, beautiful state, especially in July. Um, Very nice, yeah. To, well, relative to January. So I'm excited about that and um, and looking forward to it. But yeah, the two rarities were a blast to find. Um, and I wrote about them in the book. Sure. Um, you know, I didn't count them as, you know, 
they were the part, they weren't in your list, but they well, are, although are the of, ABA yeah. has now added the bat foul. Oh, for sure. Yeah, of yeah. course it has. Yeah, it showed yeah, up here. Added it. I don't Natu- know that they'll naturally add, occurring. Yeah, I imagine they'll add the the stellars. It meets it meets the same standards. Oh, for right. sure. Nobody nobody so, carried it over. Yeah. It flew. Yeah. Well, yeah, that would be the thing. Were there any identification challenges, you know, that that were hard uh ID challenges. Most of the Raptors, if you get a good look at reasonably close range, they're not that tough to identify. No. Um, And I, you know, what I would try to do is when I went to a state for the first time, I would, I would try to engage a guide to help me out. mm -hmm. um, Show me the differences. Um, uh, Like with the red tail and the subspecies of the Harlands, you know, I, I needed help. I still need help with that particular one. (laughs) So does everyone else. Yeah. (laughs) But you're right in general that, you know, if, if you've done a little bit of reading and you spend a little time out in the field, you know, you can usually, you know, there might be a little bit between a juvenile bald eagle and a golden eagle, you know, and some subtle ones that you have to look two or three times to make sure. But in general, if you're not looking at something that's flying, you know, 1500 feet overhead, you can you can pretty much figure it out. So, no, I think I was OK there. And and I and again I I'm quick to ask for help. I there's a lot of people out there that know infinitely more than I do, and they're generous with with their time and knowledge. So I would ask over and over again, and I and I feel like I'm like I'm building a wall that just keeps getting higher. I'm adding bricks of oh okay I look for that okay I look for that, and that's like where Dunn's books come in helpful, right? Yeah. If they're perched, you're looking for A, and if they're flying, you're looking for B, and if they're against the sun. You're looking for C, and you know. Yeah. Um, so I feel that that's that that's getting stronger. Good. And and I, and I enjoy that part of the process. Yeah, learning is part. That's that's one thing about being a birder is you never come close to knowing as much as you could know. I mean, there's always more to learn. No, there really is. I mean, we've got close to a thousand birds here in the U.S., and you've got male and female, and juvenile, and breeding, and non-breeding, and you know, some of the birds like the gulls and the bald eagle and different things that take three, four years to reach, you know, feather maturity. It's just an infinite amount of stuff to learn. Um, sure. and, I, and I marvel at the people that have built up that knowledge um, and know so much about so many of the birds. Yeah. Did you spend much time at hawk watches or was it more kind of onesie sort of birding? I did, and I'm I'm saying this with slight trepidation, not the biggest fan in the world of hawk watches. Mm -hmm. So I went to eight or nine of them, and I went to most of the better known ones, and I went on purpose. The people could not have been more helpful. Um, You know, they just generous again with their time and their knowledge. But for me to stand on a hawk watch with a dozen other people and and, and look up in the sky and try to judge the wing speed and determine whether it's a sharp shin or a Cooper's, you know, and, and, and that for me, I was somewhere just, I was at a local park about two days ago and there was a red shouldered hawk that was sitting on a tree. I was by myself and it was, you know, overlooking a pond and I got to watch that bird for about a half an hour and in the binoculars and I got some pictures for me, that's magical. And I get that it's just different. Some people like baseball, some people like football, some don't like either. So I'm not disparaging those who are fascinated by the hawk watches. And and I will go back um, and visit because it's just part of it. 
Um, but it's not my favorite part. My favorite part is to find a lone bird and to be able to spend some time staring at it, watching it, watching it, watch the world. And I enjoy that more. Yeah, I, I hear you. The hawk watches are for me about the experience. I mean, it yes. is cool seeing just mass, you know, a cattle of, of broad-winged hawks or, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've, I've got two or three hawk watches I want to go to, not so much to find a new bird, but just to experience it. I, I, you know, I want to go to Veracruz and see a hundred thousand swains and socks come Let by know someday. You're going because yeah, I, something like that, you know, I would like to go to that as well. And, you know, it's it's funny because I, I did meet two interesting people at the, I mean, I met a ton of interesting people, but most of them would fit into the predictable category, right? Enthusiasts, passionate about birds, passionate about raptors, you know, sure. and, and so that's, that's a given. But the two that I met were different. I met a gentleman who runs a hawk watch um, and we got to talking and he explained to me how little he cared about birds. Hmm. He was a retired engineer. He liked the preciseness of keeping the numbers and and he liked the quiet. It was not a, a well-attended uh, hawk watch. Mm -hmm. And um, I just found it fascinating that a man would spend eight hours a day, six days a week for six weeks watching something he doesn't care about in the way that we care about it, Yeah, right? Yeah. And then it the other time I, I, I met a gentleman, we were watching a large number of, of uh, turkey vultures take flight. And um, he looks at him and he's going through a scope. He's a very serious man. And so he's watching through the scope and there's another gentleman who's keeping the notes. And, and then there's three or four of us that are just up there looking. And um, I don't want to embarrass him, so I won't identify even the state. But And I don't even know that he would be embarrassed, actually. But he said, after looking for a bit, this massive flock of turkey vultures takes flight. He calls there, he goes, 517 turkeys. And just kiddingly, I said, you know, I... I only saw 516 and without cracking a smile or anything, it's 517. Okay. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> so we're not going to kid about bird counts on this particular piece of lumber. Yeah. yeah. And maybe it was 517. I have no idea. It was. It absolutely was. There's no question about it. Just ask that fellow. Yes. But to him, yeah, you're hundred percent right to him. And I even remember the number. I don't know why, but that number 517 just sticks in my head. Yeah. Um, counting counting birds can be kind of fun. Uh, we have a phenomenon here in Washington, uh, right in Tacoma, up at uh, Dune Peninsula. It's a little uh, point defiance park. It's just a little peninsula. And peninsulas tend to congregate birds uh, in migration. And we probably have the place in the world where the most Western tanagers go by of any place any known place, even even the Bear Divide in, in California has more birds, but probably not more Western tanagers. And there have been days with over 5,000 Western tanagers coming through that one parking lot where we stand and watch. And Charlie Wright uh, is a, a, just a spectacularly good birder. But he, uh, he has a lot of fun. Uh, it's right near where he lives. And he has a clicker. And he counts them literally one by one as they come by, click, 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 click. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, you'd have to. I mean, how, how could you keep track of numbers like that? You can't do it on your phone with eBird. You'd never, you'd be looking down all the time. So he's got his clicker in his pocket and he's clicking them off. Seven more, 14. <laughs> it's yeah, I really cool. A lot, of the, a lot of the people at Hawk Watches have those, those old style metal clickers. Mm -hmm. I guess they have new ones now where you can click 10 at a time. I'm sure. So I think they have double buttons or something. 
We have out here on the lake, we'll get um, in November, December, maybe early January, we'll get rafts of goals that show up. The mm -hmm. number in the 10,000 range, right mm -hmm. off my backyard, 50 yeah. yards from my backyard. And I'll sit out on the dock with a couple of my friends and um, we'll each privately, you know, estimate how many birds. And I hate to admit it, but we rarely come within 500 of each other. Oh, oh, I'm sure you don't. You know, I'm be, sure you don't. There'll be 9,300 from one and 10,400 from another. And all of us honestly doing our best. Yeah. Uh, but it's a wide range. I think we underestimate. I think most people underestimate. Uh, we we have a, a a roost, a winter roost of Hudsonian god of not Hudsonian of marble godwits uh, at Westport. The it's in the dock and the and the uh, pelagic boat leaves Westport. Our Westport pelagic sea uh, Westport seabirds boat goes out out through the harbor, and people have been counting the birds there and saying there was seven hundred or eight hundred or whatever. I don't remember how many, but one of the the leaders on that boat took a, a big uh, distant kind of had a good camera and took a picture of the whole flock and went home and blew that up and cut it into grids and actually counted how many birds. And there were way more. I don't remember. It was 1,400 to 16. It was a number way more than anyone was estimating. Uh, so I think, uh, I think it, numbers like that can just, uh, I think it's hard to under, I think we really overestimate how many birds are in a moving flock like that or a big flock like that. Yeah, I wonder I wonder where the number is where we start to um not not even be close. Like you're talking people were guessing or estimating seven to eight hundred, but it turns out it was fourteen hundred. Yeah. You know, off by a factor of two. Yeah, that's pretty so big. That's a big number. And and those people were doing an honest job of counting. Sure, or trying. So, yeah. You know, so I wonder where it is that we start to and it's interesting because it actually leads to one of the two new projects that I'm working on. Oh, tell me. Um, and one's going to take me close to you, actually, in March, which is based on huge number of birds. I was thinking about what I wanted to write about next. Mm -hmm. I love writing, um, but I'm not an ornithologist. I'm not a scientist. So I look for things that I can do. Um, and what I've come up with is a book. I've, I'm going to title it Spectacles, Bucket List Birding. Oh, you you are right on that. I've changed my approach to birding. I, I from you know trying to get two more on my life list or whatever to seeing the birding spectacles. I want to go to That's... Newfoundland, Newfoundland, and see the seabirds. I want to go to the, the Alaskan Islands and see the nesting yep. colonies. I want yep. to go to some hawk watches. I want to go to Bear Divide and see the the. There the, you uh, go. Yeah. Wow. Well, cool. and right in Skagit Valley, you've got the snow geese. Yeah, we do. Right. And so maybe we can connect, but I'll be there in March. And, okay. and um, in uh, in January, I'm going to Stuttgart, Arkansas. They get over a million mallards. Oh, wow. Um, and, and there are 10 of these kinds of things that occur um, around the country. And I'm going to go and uh, and do all 10 of them. And, um, and it includes, you know, the sandhill cranes, the sage sure. grouse, the sooty terns down in the dry tortugas. Mm -hmm. Next month, the puffins. Um, the purple martins uh, gather an hour from my home, over a million of them, on a small wow. island in the lake. So it's just, I need goals to keep me going. I mean, I understand people that like to bird their same patch every day. Mm -hmm. I, I respect that. And, you know, I'll sit in my front yard. I've got 120-something life birds or yard birds, and so I enjoy that. But I need, I need a motivation. I need... 
to to be out. And so this is this will keep me traveling. It'll keep me learning about new stuff, and I'm excited about it. Very cool. Uh, so Scott, you you mentioned writing. You're I learned when I was kind of doing my research for this that you're a writer. I mean, that's I mean, you've you have a Western uh, novel sort of series going, don't you? I have a number of them. I actually this book that we're talking about, although we haven't talked about it much, there's so many no. other interesting things to talk yeah. about. Um, but Raptor Quest was my 50th book in seven years. Wow. So most of those are Westerns. I decided I just wanted to write and publish a book seven years ago. I wrote it myself. I owned a marketing company. So I had my team publish it for me. Life was good. I had so much fun. I did a second one. I thought, well, that's it. That was a good thing. Now I'll try something else. But I got a call from a publisher in Europe who loved the books and said, hey, we want to publish you. And um, they took off. They they became number one best-selling books in the world. And, and I kept writing them. So of my 50 books, probably 35 are Westerns. Mm-hmm. spread out over four different series okay um and i love it i love writing them what well, sounds um, like a blast just before we started our conversation i finished a chapter in a new book i just started this week and so i'm working on that and and enjoying that i couldn't quit if i wanted to because my wife loves the characters and so she reads i write a chapter a day and she reads the chapters the following morning and she looks forward to that so i i have to do it um, but I've written books of quotations, my own quotations, children's books, a couple of business books, um, a contemporary novel, and now this, The Raptor Quest, which has led me to, I'm going to recreate Raptor Quest in Central America. I've already started. Oh, wow. So there are 48 birds in Central America that are not included in the 53 that we have here. Right, because oh we okay. share some of those birds. Yeah. Right. They go back sure. and forth. Yeah. So I've eliminated the ones that I already wrote about in Raptor Quest. It leaves me 48 other birds. Um, so I went and found a few in Costa Rica. I've got a trip to Panama coming up and then another trip to Costa Rica. And I'm gonna keep going until I find all 48. Very cool. Um, My daughter lives in Costa Rica, so I've had a chance oh, really? to bird Costa Rica a little you know bit. Yeah. You've mentioned that on some of your podcasts in the past, and uh-huh. I remember that. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I remember that now. Beautiful country. It is really fun. I, I love I love visiting. Her? She does. She is, she is uh, I would say an activist, uh uh environmental activist is her probably more closely defines what she does than anything. She probably wouldn't call herself that, but she's a wonderful woman. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. How often do you get down there? Uh once or twice a year. I try to make a kind of longer trip in the winter. And sometimes another trip. Yeah. And maybe Just, find a bird or two as long as you're there. Oh, for sure. I've got uh, Carlos Arenas is my uh, guide. He lives okay. he lives near where Gene lives. And and I haven't buried the whole country by any means. I've tried to just gone relatively easy driving distance from uh where where we we tend to live there. So uh but well, that's really fun. That's fair. Do you have a favorite bird down there? Oh my goodness. I, I don't even know. I, no. I wouldn't even, yeah. I'm not a favorite bird type guy. No. <laughs> I love birding there though. It's fun and it's challenging. Yeah. For me, tropical birding, really hard. I mean, the birds are little and they're up in the trees way up high. Very challenging. It makes it fun, but it yep. but it's it's hard. <laughs> yep. Yeah. If you find a new one there, you've earned it. It is good. Uh, so uh, you you had mentioned uh, uh, your next book. Tell me tell me a little bit about the, the let listeners uh, just describe the book you wrote. Uh, first of all, it, it, 
what's it called again? It's called Raptor Quest, Chasing America's Raptors. Okay. Describe the book. So the the idea was this. We, you know, it's generally agreed that there are 53 raptors that call the lower 48 states home. And I thought, well, that would be kind of fun to, to spend a year and find those 53 raptors. Um, and I wanted to write a chapter about each of them. Not necessarily about the first time I saw them, but maybe the most interesting time or a unique adventure that occurred around around the birds. So I wound up, I traveled in 17 months. I, I visited 34 states. I traveled a little over 100,000 miles. Um, and I found birds in a, um, in a variety of states. Uh, I'm going to grab a sheet here and share it with you. I found um, five states had one or two of the birds. North Dakota, Pennsylvania, Wyoming, Minnesota, and Jersey. Okay. Two states had four, Colorado, and all four of those were owls, and Florida. Uh, two states with five, California and Arizona. One state with eight, and that was Montana. Um, and I got my my snowy, my short, my long-eared owls, rough-legged hawk, northern goshawk, jeer falcon, and, and northern hawk owl. And um, in Texas, I got 11 of the 53. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that I didn't see birds multiple. I mean, you see a red-tailed hawk every state you go to. Sure. Um, so, but I just, I would pick. Kind of the first time you got it during your quest is where you got it. That's how you, exactly. how, given the credit to the states. Exactly. And some of the birds, a, a handful of birds, I only saw once. Uh, common blackhawk, uh, jeer falcon, hook-billed kite, whiskered screech, northern hawk, owl, and northern goshawk. Mm-hmm. And of the 53, one of them was a herd only, flammulated mm-hmm. owl. Um, yeah. Looked, looked, and looked, and looked, and looked, and finally. They're not I, easy. They're not you easy. You know what? I got to just put this one down as a herd owl. And um, and I heard it more than once and, and multiple nights. And, and uh, but I just couldn't, uh, just couldn't get one. Yeah. I've only seen them as a dark shadow flying by at night. That's, that's the only look I've had at a flame. <laughs> so, and what a couple of things I discovered, one of the questions you had mentioned earlier when you sent me some advanced notes right. um, is that some of the birds obviously are harder to find than others. Sure. But some facts that I found interesting, maybe your listeners will, of the 53 birds, 20 of them have been found in all 48 states. Hmm. Two of them have only skipped one state. The northern goshawk and the northern sawwood have been to 47. Interestingly enough, they both skipped the same state. They've never gone to Louisiana. Okay. And the snowy owl has only missed Arizona and New Mexico. I never would have thought that it would have been so commonly seen in the south, um, but it has been. On these eruption years. Plus, it's easy to identify. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. That one, that one, you don't have to read all the books to get. Mm-hmm. You can kind of figure that one out. Yeah, for but, sure. So those, those were fun, and I would, you know, I would do some. Uh, I think the British call it twitching. Mm-hmm. You know, if, yeah. if I would spot a bird when I went to see the jeer falcon, um, I got a call from the gentleman I mentioned before, Forrest Rowland, saying it showed up today, and my wife had me on a plane in twelve hours, mm-hmm. and we got that right away. And uh, with the northern hawk owl. I had scheduled another trip up to uh, Saxon Bog in Minnesota. Right. Owl 11. Mm-hmm. Um, I had missed it in February of 22. It just mm-hmm. didn't come that year. And it hadn't been seen yet 
um, in 23, but I booked the trip anyway, thinking I'll just go for a week and keep my fingers crossed. Sure. About four days before I was supposed to go on that trip, I get a call from this gentleman, Forrest, who said, I don't know, but I heard from people that I can rely on that there's a northern hawk owl in a place called Wise River, Montana. That's all I can give you. And my wife put me on a plane. I flew up there, um, landed in the afternoon. I thought, okay, I'll just drive around Wise River. You know, it's a mm-hmm. tiny little, sure. I don't even know if it's a town, but it's tiny. And just get the lay of the land. And then I had allowed three days to find the bird. Mm-hmm. So I'm dri- I drive into town and I see a dirt road and I think, okay, I'll just make a left and go up the dirt road. And then I don't go a half mile up the dirt road when there's a Northern Hawk owl sitting on an abandoned telephone pole. Very cool. I got to watch it for probably three hours that afternoon, came back in the morning and got another four hours. Wow. Um, watching that bird. Yeah. And, Very um, cool. It just couldn't have been more exciting. Yeah. It was Hawk, just Hawk owls in Washington. We, we get them, you know, here now and then uh, we've got the, We've got really good stories and really bad stories about hawk owl. The bad story is uh, uh, some guy. Uh, there that, that was a hawk owl. It was on private property, and and people were watching the owl from a public road. It wasn't you know a guy, but this guy didn't much like people checking out his place, and he shot the hawk owl and hung it up from a uh, hung it up from a wire for people to look at. So, Ooh. <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah. I, I can't even imagine how sick somebody has to be. I know that when you go to Saxon Bog, if you stop at the visitor center, have you been? No, I, I that's okay. on my to-do list. Well, it's a fantastic place to visit, but when you, when you open up the map that they give, you know that every visitor center gives you, right? Mm-hmm. A little color-coded map on where to go. And then there's one section on there that says, and I can read it to you exactly, avoid the north end of Stickney Road if possible, this is not a birder friendly location. Mm-hmm. So I asked the woman working the, the counter right. business center what that meant. And she said, what it means is they shoot at birders. Yeah. Even though it's public property, there are private homes in the area and they consider the whole thing private. And um, so I'm thinking, okay, it was minus 36 degrees that morning. And now I have to try not to get shot while I'm looking for a great gray and a, and a northern hawk owl. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, it was aptly stated, you know, the typical uh, uh, understated warning. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, I suppose there's a there's a legal thing. They can't say they'll shoot at you because that would probably lead to some bad stuff. But yeah. they were very specific about where not to go and very open about it verbally um, when you asked. And and so I respected that. I was driving a red rent-a-car. I figured that would make just too nice of a target. So yeah, for sure. I, I avoided yeah. doing that. Yeah. Uh, Colorado was the most uh, unfriendly place I've been uh, birding. Uh, my my late wife and Ken Brown, a good birding friend, and I went to Colorado on a, on a fancy chicken trip. You know, we we're trying to get the – we right. stopped at different leks. And we're driving uh, – I don't know. We're along the – is it the Comanche National Grasslands? Does that sound right? I think that's what it's called. We're driving on a public road, uh, and uh, we we stop, and a uh, vermilion flycatcher just flies right across the road. And we go, oh my goodness! And we look, and this is this is a uh, not supposed to be there. It was like it hadn't been seen in two or three years on eBird in in Colorado, uh, and we said, oh gosh, we should I should get a picture of this. Uh, and I'm stopping to try to get a picture, and some guy drives out of the out of the uh, 
the farmhouse in his big pickup truck with his rifles on the back of the pickup truck uh, uh, window. And he stops and asks us what we're doing. I, I told him, boy, there was a vermilion flycatcher right on the hoose trough there. I was hoping to get a picture. And he pretty much invited us to leave. And uh, and I said, well, that's fine. We'll, we'll move along. Uh, and uh, uh, I might have had a wise-ass thing to say. I don't remember exactly. But <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, we moved along. And we went maybe 100 yards down the road. And we're kind of looking back with a scope to see if we can see this bird. And he pulls out his pickup truck and levels his gun on the hood of the pickup truck at us. We said, I think it's time to really leave. <laughs> so we... Wow. We, uh, we moved along. And, you know, the thing that really irritated me about that most was that all of the land around his house, he was, it was federal land. He was leasing it to graze his cattle. It wasn't like he owned this property. You know, it's like, really? Yeah, wow. It was all, all BLM land. And yeah, yeah. Anyway. yeah there's uh, there's some people, you know, because I spent a total of six days out on that Aerosick Bridge in Maine. So, you know, I, I spent a total of six days on the Aerosick Bridge in Maine looking for the Stellar Seal. That's where it's seen most easily and most common. Three last year and three this year. And I had this problem this year, but not last year. This year, spending eight or nine hours on this bridge. And the bridge is maybe 100 yards across. Sure. It might be 150, but it's not, it's not a big bridge. And about 10 times a day, about once an hour, somebody would come by. And oddly enough, they were almost always driving pickup trucks. Mm -hmm. And they would start on their horn at one end and pick up speed and lay on the horn all the way across the bridge to the other end. Mm -hmm. Whether they were trying to startle or scare the birders or, or the birds. What would possess somebody? What? Where do you have to be in life that that's, that's a good thing? That you feel yeah. better about yourself when you get to the other side of the bridge. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't think that's quite how they're thinking. Yeah, I'm sorry. damn out of state, damn out of staters coming up here think they own the place. Yeah, yeah. The 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 sheriff's department, for example, was great. They came by and handed out a number of the uh, the neon green vests, like road workers wear. Mm -hmm. You know, so that we'd be easy to see. I don't know how hard it would be to miss a large group of people standing on a small bridge, but nonetheless. Um, but there were a handful of locals that just just didn't want us there. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, people get very provincial about uh, about their areas. You know, they, I guess if you move to an area where you're you're trying to get away from people, and then people show up, they're not thrilled. Yeah, for sure, um, for sure. Well, it sounds like you had a fabulous experience uh, writing this book. Uh, so, if somebody wants to get this book, what's the best way? Well, you can do it. You can go to my website, which is worldofraptors.com. Okay. Or you can go straight to Amazon and just look up the title. It's Raptor Quest, one word, easy enough, and um, and you can get it there. Okay. And, um, so it is, uh, I imagine it's available other places, but I don't know where they are. But sure. Amazon, it's readily available. And it's, it's a big book. It's about 350 pages because I have a lot of four-color photography. Okay. Uh, and uh, so I tried to tried to put in photos of as many of the birds as I could. There were a handful where I didn't get even decent shots, and so I just didn't use them. Mm -hmm. uh, but for almost all the birds, probably forty five of the birds, I've got some pretty good shots in there. Cool. And and I feel pretty good about them. So they can do it again. Worldofraptors.com, or just go to Amazon and look up Raptor Quest. Okay. I'll try to do that. I was going to get it and read it over the weekend, but uh, it wasn't on Prime. It wouldn't come like 
fast. So I said, well, I'll wait and talk to you first. <laughs> I, I, I've been, uh, life has kind of gotten in the way of preparing for this a little bit. So I, I didn't get a chance to look for it until, you know, three, four days ago. And it wasn't going to get here in time for the, for me to really look at it before we talk. So I'll have to do that later. Well, I hope that you enjoy it. And I very, very much appreciate you having me on today. Yeah, totally fun. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. I hope your book is a fabulous success. And 50 books in seven years. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's that's kind of crazy. That's one of the words that my wife uses. Yeah. Prolific is probably about prolific. Let's just, <laughs> let's just stick with I prolific. Like I, I like that better too. Okay. I, I, we all have our things that were crazy. You know, people think I'm crazy because I go birding in the middle of the night or early in the morning when the weather's not good or whatever. You know, so one person's crazy is another person's avid. So uh, we'll see. Scott, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Take care. Thank you, Ed, very much. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for listening. Scott had a fun story to tell. Uh, can you imagine just uh, diving into birding the way he has after really only becoming a birder a short time before and kind of hugging on with raptors and chasing them all down in a little over a year? Quite a story. Anyway, I enjoyed hearing Scott's story. I hope you did too. Check out his book if you get a chance. And thanks for listening. Till next time, good birding. Good day. Good day.